0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Joe Viney. Joe is the CEO of Watertown, Massachusetts-based Seismic Therapeutic. Seismic is working to discover biologic drugs for autoimmune disease. It's seeking to speed up parts of the process by using machine learning to assist with each key step starting with structural biology to evaluate targets and then including engineering of the protein drugs themselves. Jo comes to this position with a long track record. She was previously the chief scientific officer of Pandion Therapeutics, a startup acquired by Merck for 1.85 billion in February of 2021. Before that, she worked at Biogen, Amgen, Immunex, and Genentech. In this conversation, Joe talks about immigrating from the UK, how she found a career path in industry, and some key insights from her experiences that influence how she thinks about building a startup with a creative culture today. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run, Calgary Economic Development. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com and Thermo Fisher Scientific. For Bensalem Township in Pennsylvania, going a step beyond meant taking the word serial out of crime, thanks to DNA analysis technology. Before the introduction of this technology, processing the sample of a suspect took 18 months. But with the dedicated efforts of Director Fred Heron and Thermo Fisher Scientific's Rapid HIT ID Analysis System, it now takes only 90 minutes, meaning offenders can be caught and put behind bars before they have a chance to become repeat offenders. It's also helped prove the innocence of 16 people in the last five years. To watch Director Heron's story, visit www.thermofisher.com forward slash bensalem dash Dash analysis. Now, please join me and Joe Viney on the long run. Joe Viney, welcome to the long run.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: So, Joe, just as I was getting ready for this conversation, I had to reflect a little bit on how much I've read and written about uh, the immune system over the years. You know, when it goes into this haywire state and, and people in the pharmaceutical industry seek to return it to more of a calm state of, of balance, of homeostasis. I mean, there's so much that can go wrong. Uh, and a lot of these autoimmune diseases, we don't even know what causes them. It's really kind of amazing how much we are actually able to do to tip it back into more of a calm state, which is what you do.
1: That's right. Uh, Actually, I would say that um, it's amazing that it goes um, adrift so infrequently, really. I mean, it's really a very complicated network, many cells, many chemical mediators, a lot of interactions um, between uh, regular tissue cells and the immune system. And surprisingly for most of us, our immune system does a pretty good job of not only keeping us healthy, but fighting off infections. But it does go awry in autoimmunity and We have the same cells targeting different organs of the body in different types of autoimmune disease, and that adds some complexity as we think about how to develop therapies. But at the end of the day, you can either think about blocking an overexuberant reaction um, or you can think about stimulating the natural regulatory mechanisms. And certainly as I've uh, worked on both sides um, of the fence and, and I think the industry you know, right now is, is focusing a lot of effort on thinking about how to restore normal immune homeostasis by stimulating those natural regulatory mechanisms. So I'm completely fascinated by this. Um, it's sort of been a, a little bit of a black box for many, many years. And I think we're starting to make some headway right now.
0: It really is uh, never a dull moment in, auto, in studies of the autoimmune disease and, and inflammation. Um, so let, let's just start off with a little bit about you and how you came to this. Uh, so where are you from originally?
1: So I'm from the UK. I was born in Brighton, England and uh, grew up in a village. Um, my father was uh, the local headmaster, but also the village priest as well. So very integrated in a village community without much exposure to um, medicine and healthcare careers and certainly no exposure to biotech. But um, I went to London um, for my undergrad and I was fortunate enough to be in a degree program where the third year worked in industry. It was quite unusual um, at the time in the uh, mid-1980s, but I was lucky enough to do an internship at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, which is um, one of the oldest uh, teaching hospitals in London. And uh, I had an internship in the pediatric gastroenterology department. And uh, it was there on my first day, actually, that I really got hooked on this concept of um, translational science and translational medicine. And so within In um, a couple of hours of arriving at work for my internship, I um, was in attendance at an endoscopy. A child with Crohn's disease was having um, an endoscopy. And I was completely blown away at the privilege of being able to not only see this, but later that day, work um, back in the lab, isolating the lymphocytes from biopsies um, from that um, individual. And, And it really just sort of made me Um, in an instant, in a flash, understand that the science that I was studying in college could actually be applied directly to uh, understanding disease and potentially thinking about therapeutics. The bit that I'll also point out is that I passed out um, at the endoscopy it was all a bit too emotional and and when i was looking down the teaching aid the the microscope as the biopsy was taken and the blood sort of shot up at the uh, microscope at the at the end of the endoscopy um screen it felt like it was uh, going to shower me so it wasn't a very good start to my internship but it really so, uh, gave me the passion for science
0: so you thought maybe my place is in the lab not really at the patient Correct. bedside like not really <laughs> going to be a surgeon or anything like that
1: That's right right it was uh, yeah the, the the patient contact was not really um the optimal um moment that i had during uh, that interaction so yeah it was it was really that day that um i just became enamored with this concept of like how I could apply science to something that would actually be real. So I actually went back to that lab um, to do my PhD. um, And I was uh, fortunate enough to be sponsored by um, a patient charity, um, the Crohn's in Childhood Research Appeal or Kikra as as it's known. Um, So I spent <clears throat> Three years doing that, uh, the PhD there, completing that, did an academic postdoc. And then um, that was when I then came to the States to uh, have my first exposure to biotech, actually, and uh, so genentech. I did a postdoc there.
0: Your, your first postdoc was Cancer Research UK? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Yep. Now, were, you, so were you thinking that you might go into cancer research at that time?
1: Um, So the um, Cancer Research UK, or as it was known at the time, the Imperial Cancer Research Fund had a lot of basic science um, going on in the labs. It wasn't um, all applied and it certainly wasn't all directed or focused at um, cancer biology. So the work that I did during my uh, postdoc there was actually focused on um, alpha, beta and gamma, delta T cells. And and actually I made... um, one of the first knockout mice, um, the TSA-alpha knockout mice. It was the first knockout mouse in England when I was in the labs there. So it was really studying the basic fundamentals of immunology. It wasn't focused on cancer. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. So, but is that where you, you kind of got um, focused on immunology and inflammation? Uh, like the, the, the basics uh, were, were the pathway to that uh, field?
1: Yeah, so I would say in my PhD I studied the uh, lymphocytes in the intestine with a focus on inflammatory bowel disease. I then did the postdoc at um, the ICRF, which helped me understand how those T cells were generated and regulated, and that was the stepping stone. Um, I was sort of faced with a career choice then: continue in academia um, or um, explore something else. And I, I wanted to um, get my BTA or my Bean to America badge, which is very important. Um, for funding when you want to have a career in academia in England. So actually, that's what drove me to do a postdoc at Genentech. It was really the applied science that I felt I could learn at Genentech um, in a collaborative environment. And it was really only meant to be for a three year postdoc. I'd get my BTA, then I'd head back to the UK, and then I continued down this uh, academic career path. But um, as you can tell, I haven't actually made it back to the UK yet. That was uh, 1994. Was when I came over for three years, and uh, here I am. Whatever, almost thirty years later, still still working in biotech. Just really got the bug.
0: B T A. Been to America. I had not heard that one before. That's that's a good one. <laughs> so you, <laughs> the, but you came to Genentech, and what was that experience like for you?
1: Yeah. So that was uh, my eyes really. Um, open there about the power of collaborative teamwork. Um, you know, in academia, you're really working on your own, you're in a lab, but it's very competitive, not only with other labs, but actually also with your lab mates a little bit. Who's going to get the paper? Who's going to get what authorship? And I turned up at Genentech, and um, not only was I like in a candy land where there were kits for doing experiments instead of making all the independent reagents on my own. So things moved much faster. I was also in a lab where people worked together on experiments and that teamwork and collaboration and that sort of community around a shared purpose of try- trying to drive the science forward was what really hooked me in and convinced me that this was how I wanted to pursue my um, career, making medicines, understanding disease. I wanted. To to do it in an environment with other people who had complementary expertise, but shared that same purpose for trying to build medicines.
0: So whatever people said about industry back in your academia days, it didn't really apply. You, you saw this as a perfectly good place to do science. I thought it
1: was an awesome place to do science, and um, and I had no idea because yeah, when you're in academia, there's you know this view that going to industry is the dark side, and uh, I had completely the opposite experience. It was like a light was shone on, um, the, um, how to do science properly and how to accelerate, uh, discoveries.
0: So you're there for a while, uh, and then you headed up to Seattle to Immunex. Uh, what did you work on there?
1: Yeah. So, um, so, when I was at, um, Genentech, I had worked on MagCam, which was a cell adhesion molecule, which drives trafficking of immune cells to the intestine. So it sort of, it was a co- uh, con- continuation of the work that I'd done in my PhD and a little bit of the alpha, beta and gamma delta T cell work I'd done at my postdoc. So with that in hand, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about immune regulation in the intestine and the intestine is the most immunologically challenged organ in the body. If you think about the number of things that you ingest, both beneficial antigens and pathogens and innocuous antigens like the the flora, There's the the gut has a tremendous job to do in keeping things all under control, that sort of normal immune homeostasis that we talked about at the beginning. So, with that as my springboard, when I moved up to Seattle, I went to Immunex, and the goal there was to actually set up a group focused on trying to develop new therapies for inflammatory bowel disease. So, that was really my mission um, when I joined the company. And so, I spent a fair amount of time setting up animal models um, of disease, but also So when I was there, really trying to understand how dendritic cells or antigen presenting cells could present these beneficial and harmful antigens at the same time to T cells. And still in the normal immune system, the gut doesn't react. We're normally mostly healthy, but we can react to pathogens. But when the immune system loses control, that's when inflammatory bowel disease can occur. So that was where I really sort of took all the learnings from my internship, my PhD, my um, two postdoc positions, and sort of put them all together really with a, a drug development program.
0: And those were the years when uh, ImmuneX was advancing Enbrel, um, huge success. But that was sort of, it sounds like you were, you were, Further back, like in the earlier stage, uh, discovery uh, and development.
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of effort um, being put on Embrel. It was in its late stages um, of clinical development and going through regulatory approval. Um, But that was really um, the inspiration, actually, for those of us who were working in the earlier stages of discovery, is how something that could be invented at home, um, a biologic, could actually clinical trials and actually could have such a remarkable impact uh, on many different diseases. And, and as you know, um, uh, Embrol really has uh, had efficacy in so many different diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. Many, many different um, disease diseases have benefited from not only embryo, but other TNF inhibitors as well. And I think that told us a lot about the power of biologics and how biologic therapies could be used to be a very targeted way of sort of readjusting the immune system so that it can get back to the normal immune homeostasis.
0: And there were a lot of people there, you know, familiar with, uh, you know, protein engineering, uh, molecular biology. So like, I don't think a lot of people know, but Enbrel is actually a a fusion protein as I recall, it's not a monoclonal that's antibody. Right. So there's right. just different ways to approach, you know, the TNF receptor and, and, you know, soak up those inflammatory cytokines, if that's what you want to do. And so you, you had lots of these tools, right. To, to work that, with.
1: That's so, right. Yeah. And it really opened my eyes that we didn't have to think about antibodies only as a way to block cytokines or cytokine receptors. And as you rightly point out, um, Embrel is a soluble TNF receptor. So it's the, tnf receptor the tnf binding parts of the tnf receptor on an antibody backbone um, and it's really quite amazing to think about how protein engineering can be used to generate these body these molecules that really are what the body makes on its own It's just putting more of them in the body to sort of divert the immune system away from the inflammatory response and and to block all of that um, negative inflammation and to restore normal immune homeostasis
0: yeah, yeah. So um, uh, then a thing happened. Amgen decides to buy Immunex. Uh, pretty big deal. Uh, and uh, you stayed uh, for a number of years with Amgen. Um, what did what what happened with your career? It sounds like uh, this is like you you took up some management responsibilities. What what did you uh, what was your next challenge there at Amgen?
1: Yeah. So, um, so that, that it was it was very sad for all of us at Immunex. We thought things were going so well, and uh, we had just got approval. Of Embrel and uh, and then Amgen swooped in and they they sort of were viewed themselves a little bit as the knight in shining armor who came to our rescue because there were some challenges with manufacturing Embrel. Um, so I, what I learned um, in that uh, the first couple of years that after Amgen took over Immunex was that you really have to pay a lot of attention to people and how to deal with change. Um, the the two um, the two companies were quite different in their approach, not only their approach to science, but also culturally, they were quite different. And so integrating um, the smaller company into the larger company and keeping everyone motivated um, on the science and trying to remember that that's what we were really there for, that was a little bit of a challenge. And so that was sort of my big um, aha moment with management is that, you know, you can focus on the science, but actually if you want to get science done, you really have to focus on the people and make sure everyone's um, fully equipped to be firing on all cylinders. So um, I stayed in Seattle for a number of years after the acquisition for about five years. And then um, I moved to the headquarters down in Thousand Oaks. And so as my career evolved, I expanded. Landed from just uh, overseeing one group um, in Seattle to overseeing another group in Thousand Oaks as well. And so then uh, racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles flying up and down um, the coast between um, Los Angeles and Seattle as I I managed those groups. But it really taught me... um, how to do drug discovery and development professionally. Amgen was much further along, had developed more therapeutics um, than Immunex had. And so it was a tremendous learning experience and just a much larger organization overall.
0: You know, that was of course uh, my beginning as a biotech writer. And I I got hooked on that story. that interesting juxtaposition of the companies and their cultures, you know, I mean, my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, Immunex had that that freewheeling scientific, uh, uh, kind of an irreverence to it, uh, a, a joy of scientific discovery. It reminds me of Genentech in some of uh, ways and uh you know amgen in those days was it was run by kevin sharer the former navy submarine commander <laughs> um it, 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 there was a discipline uh to the place uh and uh obviously amgen had been very successful with uh the original epigen and neupogen and uh and it knew how to manufacture these biologics at large scale so it, it definitely um in some ways, was the the night that did come in and solve the Enbrel shortage, um, but um, but yes, there was a lot of of tension, uh, as I recall, around that uh, that merger.
1: Yeah, I think you uh, really described it very well. Um, Immunex and Genentech were both like research boutiques, really. there were sort of um, academic labs, but where people really collaborated and had the tools to um, create really innovative medicines and to do it very quickly. And, and Amgen was a different beast. It really was a much more, well, it was a larger organization and so had to have more sort of um, measures in place to make sure that resources were appropriately allocated, but yeah, quite a different personality.
0: Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And from keeping serial offenders off the streets and giving families the closure they need to helping people prove their innocence. Rapid DNA has been a game changer for Bensalem Township in Pennsylvania. Through Director Heron's commitment and willingness to go a step beyond in his duty to protect and serve, it's safe to say that his community now sleeps a lot easier at night. Watch Director Heron's story at www.thermofisher.com forward slash Bensalem DNA analysis. You made the move east to go to Biogen. Why did you do that?
1: Yeah. So actually, um, I was really interested in, um, sort of continuing my career growth. And Doug Williams, who had been the head of R and D at Immunex, had recently joined Biogen and was looking for, um, someone to head up the immunology research therapeutic area at Biogen. And so, um, connections being connections, he and I got talking. And, uh, the next thing I knew, I was relocating myself and my family, um, from the, uh, fires and earthquakes and rattlesnakes over to mosquitoes and snow and humidity. So, um, so in 2011, I made the move, um, move east. Yeah, That was my first time on the East Coast. So up until then, I'd, I'd only lived on the West Coast, starting in San Francisco, moving up to Seattle, moving down to Los Angeles. I'd sort of done that coast. And, uh, the, then it was time for, um, trying out the East Coast.
0: So a little over 10 years ago, and as I recall, this was really around an inflection point, I think, for the Boston hub. A whole lot of things were happening. Big pharma companies were moving in. Uh, A lot of the first generation companies were maturing and had products coming out, a lot of venture capital. So what what were your impressions when you got there to uh, Cambridge?
1: Yeah, it was hugely exciting. Um, You know, I think if I had moved from Seattle, where there was um, a smaller but sufficient um, biotech scene, if I'd moved from Seattle to Boston, it would have been a little bit of a transition. But when moving from Thousand Oaks, where really there was only Amgen, it was the only game in town, um, or the only big game in town. When I moved to Boston, and there was Biogen and all these other biotech companies—large, small, big pharma, tiny startups. Um, I was completely blown away by the intellectual capital that existed, and and I, I couldn't believe that whatever coffee shop I went into, um, there were people with IQs probably. You know, double or triple my IQ. It was just, it was completely um, you know, I was I was I was in entranced by uh, this um environment where there was just so much going on and so many smart people and so much motivation and um, a lot of support for uh, trying new things and and really pushing the innov- innovation envelope. And so that was my start um here in 2011. It was at Biogen. Biogen was going through um sort of a uh, um, a little bit of a reorganization, to, as it as after Doug and George had come in. Um, so George Skangos and Doug Williams, um, and it was a really exciting time to be there for the um, first few years, where we had many different therapeutic areas and managed to develop a number of molecules which made it into the clinic um, in that time.
0: Yeah, and then you got the startup buck.
1: Yeah. Well, so um, it was a little bit of an easy transition. Um, So Biogen had made a decision to focus um, much more on neurology rather than on immunology and inflammation. And so um, being a therapeutic area strategist and interested in inflammation and uh, immunology and inflammation and autoimmunity my whole career, um, it seemed like it was a good time to think about doing something else. And as so I looked outside of Biogen's doors and saw so many people having fun in startup companies, I thought that might be something um, I would want to do. So, um, so that's that's what happened in 2017. I decided to leave the my big biotech career and to become employee number one of a brand new startup company.
0: And how did that come about?
1: um so i had a few conversations with some of the um vcs in town who i'd interacted with um at, at various um time points during my career as we in licensed um you know, various opportunities. And I met Alan Crane, um, who's a venture investor at Polaris Partners. We had coffee at the Coke Cafe.
0: Maybe, maybe um, I should back up just a little bit, because you you were, uh, you were senior vice president at Biogen. So you actually did get to interact with VCs. You got to know some people. They'd ask you questions about the things you're working on. And it wasn't in a pressured kind of situation, but you're building your network. Whether you realize it or not, like these are actually the kind of people that you you come to talk to later about. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I really should highlight that um, I was very lucky to have a pretty extensive network um, outside of Biogen, even in the um, startup world and in the venture community, because of the um, position I'd been in at Biogen. But um, you know we all know that networking connections are really important. As I just described, that's how I ended up at Biogen was um through my network and connections with Doug. So um so I'm anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted
0: we- you were you were saying that you met with Alan. Crane.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I met with Alan Crane. We had uh, uh, we had coffee in the Coke cafe and um, and he uh, talked to me about some ideas he had about tissue tethered immune regulation. And I was completely enamored with this concept and, and actually was feeling a little bit embarrassed that I'd spent my whole career trying to think about making medicines for autoimmunity. And I'd never really thought about it um, in a tissue tethered, um, sort of using a tissue tethered approach. So we got Chatting and uh, and then we met for another coffee and another coffee after that and and that was really how we came to put Pandian together. And what so do you mean it. by
0: a, a tissue tethered approach?
1: Oh, so so we were just talking using embrel as an example. This was um, embrel's a, a soluble TNF receptor, so it floats around the body. So it's a drug that floats around. Catches cytokines that are um, going around the bloodstream and neutralizes them. But it works throughout the whole body. And what we were trying to do was to think about, for example, if you have inflammation in the kidney, how do you get a drug to work only in the kidney and to spare the rest of the body? Or if you have inflammation in the intestine, how do you get a drug to work only in the intestine and not anywhere else in the body? So the um, concept that we had for Pandian was to dock our immune modulators in the organ where there was inflammation, and then use those immune modulators to only modulate immune cells right in that proximity where the inflammation was happening. And so that was really the thesis behind the company was to um, use these tissue tethered modulators. We wanted to stimulate natural regulatory mechanisms. We felt that was the best way to sort of create a cloak or a halo um, around the organ where there was inflammation to just, you know, allow the inflammation to calm down and the tissue to restore itself to, um, you know, a healthy state.
0: So were there special, uh, you know, delivery chemistries necessary to like keep the molecule confined to the organ or how, how did you think about keeping it confined?
1: Yeah, well, we were using biologics. And so, um, unlike with small molecule chemistry, where you can think about, um, different, um, Places where there can be exposure of a drug, we had biologics. And so what we used was actually an antibody directed um, tissue tether. So for the gut, we were making tissue tethers that were directed towards MADCAM, the mucosal cell adhesion molecule, which is only expressed in the intestine. And then for skin tethered and kidney tethered um, molecules, we were using antibodies that bound to antigens that were expressed in those tissues. So parts of the, the um, kidney or the skin um, uh, that allowed these antibodies to sort of stick and glue and dock on and then stay there. And then the other end of the molecule was going to modulate the immune system.
0: Okay. So it's it depends heavily on getting the right antigen, the, the biology guiding you there.
1: Absolutely, it was all about biology. It wasn't about um, chemistry. That said, um, what we learned as we were um, progressing our programs that you need to spend a lot of time thinking about how the antibody binds, what affinity and what avidity it has. So that, um, but it was really all about the antibody properties. It wasn't any funky chemistry.
0: And once the antibodies got there, they would um, recruit essentially T regs.
1: Uh. Yep. So they would stay there and we had um, two different um, uh, ways we were thinking about modulating the immune system. One was with a Treg activator, so an IL-2 mutine, and then the other was um, with uh, an antibody to inhibit activated cells, so targeting an inhibitory receptor. So we had two different approaches on the immune end and then we had multiple different um, tissue tethers on the bottom for docking in different organs. And Pandion,
0: you just uh, synthesized these biologics in house and developed all of this very quickly.
1: Yes, we got lucky. I mean, science is a lot of hard work and it's um, even more luck. And so um, we were, um, we had a relatively small um, team. Um, And and we got very lucky and within a year we'd identified an IL-2 mutine that was incredibly selective for activating Tregs and we chose to push that forward and develop it. So the first molecule actually was not tissue tethered, it was a molecule that worked throughout the body, but we felt it had um, very favorable properties for um, Treg activation and and that molecule was called PT-101. um, we managed to get that into the clinic very quickly. Um, so in early 2020, right before the pandemic, um, we took PT101 um, into healthy volunteers, and we were able to complete our clinical trial. Fortunately, um, during the pandemic, and we got some um, very exciting data that resulted in Merck being interested in Pandian, and that was that was the end of Pandian for me. It was the end of the road because Merck bought us. So great for patients. Um, uh, Merck has much deeper pockets and is able to take that drug forward in many different disease indications because there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but that was uh, four years and one day was how long um, Pandian lasted.
0: Yeah. And it went through a phase one trial.
1: Correct. Yep. Um,
0: now, when you say IL-2 mutian maybe we could back up a little because most people when they hear IL-2, they think of engineered cytokines for cancer. There's been a whole lot of effort, a lot of companies, Working on, you know, that to uh, stimulate that that other side of the immunity to like go in and kill the the cancer cells. Uh, you're doing the opposite, something very opposite to that. Uh, were you able to build on some of those uh, um, other efforts or, or learnings?
1: Yeah. So, um, so IL-2 is a very interesting uh, cytokine. Obviously, it was the second cytokine that was discovered. Um, and, uh, and how it acts is through three different surface receptors that are expressed on um, immune cells. And so activated T cells um, express a high affinity Um, IL-2 receptor, which is all three components, and then regular T cells just only express two of those components. And it's that biology that really drove a lot of the oncology interest or the stimulating the immune system interest in using IL-2 as a therapy for treating cancer. That knowledge um, really helped us when we started thinking about IL-2 for immunity. So what became clear from some of the early oncology studies is that as well as activating NK cells and CD8 cells, Treg cells were also activated um, by the therapy, which is not desirable. Um, Obviously, for oncology, but was incredibly desirable for us in autoimmunity. So, we and many others um, spent a fair amount of time looking at how IL 2 interacted with the three components, the alpha, beta, and gamma chains um, of the IL 2 receptor, and making modifications to IL 2 that could alter how it interacted with any of those three receptors. And so um, for the IL-2 mutine that we made for autoimmunity, we and others um, have made mutations um, in IL-2 that allow it to preferentially bind to the three receptors that are expressed on Treg cells. But it certainly came from a lot of the work that stemmed for many years before um, in the oncology space. And that was the PT-101 molecule that um, Pandian created that was bought by Merck.
0: So there was some engineering fine tuning, some some changes. Oh, there was a lot of fine
1: tuning. The, yeah. <laughs> the
0: you know the amino acid switches here or there. What what effect does that get in terms of dialing up the T reg activity that you want?
1: Yeah, it was it was it was single amino acid changes, and then multiplexing those single amino acid um, changes to create a final molecule that could bind preferentially um, in a way that. Um, activated Tregs. And and that was the discovery that, you know, we stumbled upon um, a a combination of mutations that, um, that really drove impressive selectivity for Tregs.
0: Okay. So you were employee number one, your chief scientific officer, four years in one day, this thing is sold to Merck. It's a big success. Uh, What do you do then?
1: yeah well, so I was thinking about hanging up my dance shoes for about um, you know a microsecond or two when I had another conversation with Alan Crane, the same person who was a co-founder and chairman of the board of Pandian. um and he um said he'd been thinking about something new. And would I be interested in chatting with him and with Tim Springer about a new idea that they had? and uh, and so, of course, being always interested in the science, um I, turned around and said, sure, let's have a conversation. And and so that was the um, origins of Seismic, which is where I'm working now.
0: Yeah. You stayed at work for six months to do the usual handoff stuff, as I recall. And then yeah. like, when that ends, it's like, okay, now, now you'll have a conversation with Alan and what? What's next? Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, and um, yeah, and the six months is—I mean—it's really important to stay and make sure that the programs and some of our people were fully integrated. I think that you know, drug discovery and development is a very complicated process, and it's it's just not possible to hand it over um, in a short time frame. So the six month was six months was um, a perfect time frame for making sure that our little baby was going to be taken care of by Merck. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that's now theirs. Um, now seismic. What what what's the basic concept here that you and Alan discussed?
1: Yeah, so, so Tim and Alan had been um, talking, along with some of the other um, academic founders of, of Seismic, particularly Debbie Marks and um, Jeff Ravitch and Eric Sundberg. So they'd been talking about, was there a way to use machine learning to accelerate the drug discovery process to make um, multiple amino acid changes in a protein to alter how it would drive biology. So I just explained to you how we did that sort of piecemeal at at Pandium. We made uh, lots of single amino acid changes and then by trial and error had to put them together and and make proteins. But with machine learning, you have the ability to not just make, you know, a handful or tens of um, mutated proteins. You can actually make hundreds of thousands of um, proteins by using computers to simulate um, what amino acid changes will do to a protein and how it will interact with its um, counterpart receptors. So, that was the um, the high-level concept. So, Debbie Marks is um, uh, one of the gurus of machine learning. So, she's at, at Harvard, um, has a lab very near, um, Tim's lab, and they had collaborated. Tim's a structural immunologist, so spends a lot of time thinking about how proteins interact with their their uh, counter receptors or, or ligands. So they were talking first. Um, and then Eric Sundberg and Jeff Ravich also joined the conversation as we started to think about, could we put together machine learning, structural immunology and translational immun- immunology into a platform that would allow us to develop the next generation? of immune modulators, and it could either be for cancer or for autoimmunity. At Seismic, we're focusing first on autoimmunity, Um, but it's using those tools and those foundational scientific technologies together in our drug creation process that is going to um, enable us to uh, think about what medicines comes comes next for uh, autoimmunity.
0: So, these components, the key ones here structural biology, it's that picture of the target or the target in different states maybe um, right. and yeah. and so like really understanding that what you're trying to bind with along with the the protein engineering whether and that could be that could come in lots of different forms, whether it's an antibody or fusion protein of some kind uh binding properties to that target. And then what's this third piece that you described, the translational immunology? These are the assays?
1: Yeah, so really understanding how um, what, how do we measure um, in the lab the impact of changes that we make in the protein? So it's requiring us to develop um, new approaches for uh, studying the biology um, so that we can look at at many different attributes of the molecule all at one time. So do we have greater activity? Do we have greater inhibitory activity? Do we um, need more of the um, antibody or recombinant protein? Do we need to alter the avidity or the affinity of the components of this engineered protein to get us the, the biology that we want? So we need to dissect out how the immune cells respond to these alterations that we're making in the protein so that we can really understand the impact um, of our engineering.
0: And you are making those single amino acid changes kind of um, systematically, uh, and, and, uh, but you can, you can find out what they're doing much more quickly.
1: Yes, we're making the um, amino acid changes not singly anymore, but um, in parallel, we're making multiple amino acid changes um, all at once. And that's what the machine learning really allows us to do. So historically, we would manually look at a structure and we would um, say, well, that amino acid on that cytokine looks like it interacts with those amino acids on that receptor. So why don't we see what happens if we make a change there? Well, that change could result in the Lapse of the cytokine, and so then we're like, okay, well that was a bad change. But if we use machine learning, we can say, well, what if we made that change, and we made a change up here, and a change over there, and then a change down here? Now, can we actually make that cytokine? And now, can we test what happens if we've made those four changes all at once? The cytokine still stays together; it's still in its similar format. Now, let's see what that does um, when we. Expose it to our immune cells. And so it's that parallelization or the multiple amino acid changes at once that allows us to explore sort of the real estate on the cytokine or the protein um, that we otherwise might not have explored if we couldn't make the protein because that one change caused the whole thing to collapse.
0: Now, obviously, there's t- just about infinite possibilities of things you could do on, you know, in silico. Uh, and the, the machine learning enables that. Uh, all, all these possibilities, but you all have to decide. Okay, which ones are we going to synthesize physically in the real world, and then put through our immunological assays? How, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. So, so that um, so this is where the um, machine learning and human um, experience sort of intersect. And so, we um, group. The prototypes that we generate in silico and then choose representative examples to uh, test. So to actually make that protein of that prototype and then test it um, in our system. So it's definitely not that machines can do all of this without humans. We still need a little bit of human experience to help with the clustering and the grouping of those prototypes. And then using, um, now we have the ability, um, to use high throughput approaches for generating multiple proteins at once and miniaturizing our assays so that we can actually look at, you know, a few hundred molecules um, at the same time. So it's not as labor intensive as it was a couple of decades ago, where it was one uh, sequence and one transfection and one protein and one protein purification and one test. We can actually do a number of these in parallel now, but we do need to Still have that human overlay um, on the proto the hundreds and thousands of prototypes that we we create, and then when we get some interesting data, we say, okay, let's go back and explore more of the mut- uh, more of the um, proteins that we've generated in the- in this grouping to see if we can enhance or diminish um, some of the activity we're looking for.
0: How helpful has the um, the the general advancements in AI for drug discovery been? for what you're doing. Because I mean a lot of people listening probably have heard of, you know, the, the big breakthrough with Rosetta fold and alpha fold, um, uh, you know, the ability to take, you know, an amino acid structure and and predict its function. Now I don't think that works a hundred percent of the time in every situation, but I mean it's 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 pretty amazing. Um people've been working on yeah. this for a long, long time. So like how has how does that help or what you do or does it?
1: Yes, it absolutely. Um, I mean, the field is moving incredibly quickly at the moment. And, um, and the advances are tremendous. And I think we're all learning from each other. And, and, and so we absolutely um, are watching what's going on in this space. Um, a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning is being applied for looking for new targets. Um, That's not how we're applying machine learning. We're really focusing our efforts on how do we use machine learning to create um, uh, therapeutics for intervening in pathways that we're interested in. But the um, Alpha Fold, as you've mentioned, is a a tremendous um, uh, asset to Uh, science where we can actually now have a look at how do proteins um, interact. And so all of these models uh, come together where we've been working on machine learning approaches that enable us to look at um, how to invisibilize um, a protein. And by that, we mean how do we can we predict what are the epitopes that would be recognized by the immune system and how would we make mutations to make the protein less visible? And so that's really how we um, sort of put together some of this structural information with the engineering that we're doing.
0: Make it less visible so that it's uh, less immunogenic?
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and so I think that's you know that's a challenge that um, we all focus on with biologic therapies. Actually, antibodies are the perfect example. You know, a couple of decades ago, most of the antibodies were made in in mice or rats, um, and they were immunogenic, so they might have benefit. Um, in as a therapy, but they were immunogenic, and that very much limited their use. Then we it, engineering evolved, and we had um chimeric um, antibodies, which were um, mouse antibodies sort of grafted onto a human backbone. And then um, a decade ago, we had the evolution of fully human antibodies that uh, and and pretty much m- most antibodies that go into the clinic right now a fully human antibody. So we know that immunogenicity is a really big problem for um, any protein therapeutic. So
0: have you, I know it's still early days at seismic um, you've, you raised a uh, hundred million or so last October, I think. So it's nine months later. Uh, have, can you say a little bit about like what areas you're prioritizing uh, your, your early R and D efforts on?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I joined um, Seismic in October and we uh, closed our Series A at the end of last year. Um, and so we've been focusing um, our efforts on building the team um, as one does at the beginning. And we've got two main drug product areas. Um, one of them, focused on uh, B cell mediated diseases. And so thinking about antibodies and how antibodies play a role in disease. And then our second drug product area is focused on T cell mediated diseases and thinking about how we can develop therapeutics that can alter how T cells respond um, when they recognize antigen. So both uh uh, B cells and T cells are involved in ad- adaptive immunity, and so as we look at seismic uh, holistically, that's really our focus is restoring normal immune homeostasis and resetting the dysregulation that you see when the adaptive immune system goes awry.
0: Okay, so you're not ready to talk about specific indications and targets just yet.
1: No, not no, stay tuned. Um, but give us um another few months. We're um, busy uh, sort of shoring up our data and uh, filing some provisional um, applications. And then later this year, early next year, we'll be talking a little bit more about um, our targets and our approaches and and what we're actually developing.
0: Okay. So in the first year, of the company. And and this is your second go around, as we mentioned, spoke about Pandion. What's, uh, what do you think is really important for you to focus on as the, well, the CEO now?
1: Just Yeah. Beginning. So, yeah. So really um, my main focus, we sort of um, touched on this a little bit um, uh, a few moments ago when we were talking about the Amgen acquisition of Immunex. And it was really there that I learned that it's the people that, make the discoveries. It's not the discoveries that make the discoveries. Um, and so, uh, my main role as CEO is making sure that we recruit the best talent that we can. We recruit, um, people who have come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and put them together. And so that's really our, um, platform approach here. Our drug creation group has got the machine learning, um, scientists embedded directly side by side with our protein engineers, um, and with our structural immunologists. and So that we think creates a really perfect combination of a team environment of people who can be motivated um, and have purpose for developing um, new therapies. So it's really the culture. um, It's getting the talent. It's making sure we have career opportunities for everyone. It's empowering um, everyone who comes through the door to um, have what they need to do their best and, um, and uh, sort of really, create an innovative and an exciting environment here.
0: When we spoke last fall, I remember you saying that, uh, that you have spirited conversations at the company, uh, which, mean, which is one way of saying like, we can disagree about things and that's okay. Uh, we have different styles. We have different ways of thinking and that you actually seek that out.
1: Yeah, that's true. And we have very spirited discussions, which um, if you didn't know us better, you might um, misinterpret for being heated arguments. But it's all focused on um, really trying to dig to the bottom and, and understand the science of what we're we're trying to do here. So um, we do, we have 24 hour thinkers. We have people who take even a little bit longer than 24 hours. We have fast decision makers and we have people who are more than willing to speak their mind, even if they're not right. Um, And we have people who are very hesitant to speak their mind, even though they could be very accurate. And so it's that mix of people um, and the encouragement of Being able to um, have frank conversations and to challenge um, ideas that we thrive on, and and so everyone who walks through the door is empowered um, to do that. Um, We, this isn't just the leadership. I think the leadership models this, Um, but uh, we often we're in incubator space at the moment, and some of the feedback that I get is that, wow, like your company is really noisy noisy in a good way um, because we're always we're always um, debating um, you know what's the best way um, to do something and I think that's really important as you know as we do bring in people, and we need to make sure that there's space for the different styles and, and different personalities to be able to contribute. So we mix things up. It's not all sort of verbal debate. We do have some quiet, um, creative um, time as well, um, just to make sure that we're capturing all the um the knowledge that we've brought through the door and making sure that we leverage it and um and put it together in this new mix that's now seismic so that we can um be as creative as we can be.
0: Do you have some rules or boundaries for argument? Because, you know, in the wider world, these things can get pretty intense and personal and name calling and all that kind of stuff, which I would imagine you don't really want in a company.
1: (laughs) No, I don't think. um, Do you know, that's really interesting. You should ask that. So we have not put any rules in place, but we have never yet, and I say yet, um, seen anything personal or um, resort to name-calling. Really, it's all focused um, on the science and it's not about individuals or who's who's speaking out. And I don't know quite how we've managed to do that, um, but it really is um, respectful scientific debate and not personal agendas.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh, do you think this is something you mentioned that this is really important? Is this something that you think a lot of companies struggle with?
1: um I think that um well, I guess my personal view so i'll be careful to say here is my personal view um my personal view is if people are insecure, they don't like to be challenged and um and and so any questioning um of an activity or a direction that's being taken can be perceived as a personal slight if you're feeling insecure. I'd like to think that everyone who comes through our door feels so secure that they don't feel afraid about being challenged and so don't take it personally. Um, You know, I think that's really what it comes down to is um, people feeling comfortable that um, it's okay uh, asking the hard questions. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So
0: what are your big, I think you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but what are your goals for the next couple of years for Seismic? Yeah. So, um, so we've,
1: um, we're sort of Um, heads down and um, really pushing ahead both of our um, drug product area programs. Um, We have brought on a large um, number of people to join our team and we want to make sure that they're all fully integrated and um, fully empowered. We're going to be moving out of our incubator space into our own space next year and so I think that's going to be fun and we need to make sure that we don't lose time um, with that move. And our goal is to um, generate drug candidates as soon as we can and get them into people um, as soon as we can too. So we're already you know, putting a lot of things in place to enable us to accelerate um, that aspect of the drug discovery and development process.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I know we established early on that you're a scientist and not a physician, you don't lay hands on patients and that kind of thing. But um, I did notice that you know, you, you, you've you mentioned getting the drug to the patients as quickly as you can, and that was an important part of selling to Merck, uh, your previous company. Um, and I also saw that you did, um, you, you participate in Life Science Cares in the Boston community. Uh, so there's seemingly an awareness of like biotech not exactly operating in the little vacuum, like your own little incubator space that you never leave with your 25 people. Uh, why... Um, w- why do you seek to engage um, with um, the wider world or or integrate your work more carefully with the wider world?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, I view um, biotech as a really big community where the biotech community is bound by science and we're a people with a purpose, and we're all focused on improving health and fighting disease. But you know this is a hard business to be in and um and over the years, it has been a business that maybe um, isn't as representative as it could be of the general population. And so there are certainly groups that are um, underrepresented in terms of contributing to biotech and, you know, so women, people of color, the LGBTQ community. And, um, and so the reason I partner with Life Science Cares is to really think about how can we bring those other segments of the general population that maybe don't have access or don't have the network to be able to contribute to our big biotech mission, um, how can we integrate those people and bring them in um, to biotech so that we're leveraging all of that talent that otherwise would be sitting on the sidelines? And Life Science Cares does a really good job with that. In addition, Life Science Cares also has the approach of making sure that we don't allow the communities around us to, um, to um, be stuck in a state where poverty can drive a lot of um, the sort of everyday living um, of the, the communities around us. And so that to me is what Life Science Cares offers. It's that community outlook, it's taking care of the people around us, and it's trying to take that community and bring it into our biotech community that strives to with this purpose to to bring better medicines and better health um so i get spend a lot of my time volunteering uh doing things with Life Science Cares, also with West Women in the Enterprise of Science and Technology. I also mentor for Mass Next Gen, which is for first time um, female CEO. So I spend a lot of time giving back because I think it's really important to throw the ladder down, this career ladder that we're on, throw that ladder down and show that first rung to people who might not know that a ladder exists. And if you can get those people coming in, we're going to have a much richer biotech community, much greater diversity of thought, more arguments and spirited discussions, um, but more innovation as well. And if we don't do that, we're going to, you know, become a very, very narrow um, industry that um, won't have the innovation that we'd like to pride ourselves on.
0: You know, there's a lot of people that live not too far away from that intellectual beehive of Kendall Square and just are kind of walled off from it. Not that aware of, of all the amazing things that are happening there. And uh, I think a lot of work can be done to, um, to bridge that gap. Um, and, uh, and I also imagine that, you know, it's uh, not bad for camaraderie at your company to get your employees out there uh, volunteering together. Uh, outside of the office, uh, get to know each other a little bit as, as people and what motivates them.
1: Yeah, so we we um, enjoy the volunteering, but um, a lot of the um, volunteer activities that we participate in is mentoring. Um, so specific mentoring for getting um, a more diverse community uh, into biotech. So I mentioned um, West. We also have um, people uh, on our staff who um, mentor um, with Project On Ramp, um, with uh, Career Forge. This is a new Lab Central Ignite program. It's all about how do we help people see this career that they knew nothing about. And I sort of reflect back on how did I stumble upon science? I was lucky enough to do an internship. I was sponsored by a charity to um, give me sort of a a minimum wage to be able to work that year um, as an intern in a lab. And it opened my eyes to a career that I had no idea existed. And if we can do that for more people, just think about what a rich population um, will have of people who Otherwise know nothing about um this industry.
0: People have to start somewhere and someone yeah. has to extend that hand. Yep,
1: yeah, yeah. And so we're very active, you know, even at seismic, we have a number of interns um from the Gloucester Biotech Academy, Project On Ramp, Career Forge. Um, it's it's an important part of our um mission is to give back as well. And so in addition to the camaraderie we have when we're digging, um, in a garden in, you know, in Roxbury, we have a lot of camaraderie when we've got some of our, you know, entry level scientists feeling proud about mentoring and, and helping someone, um, learn the skills that are needed to have a career in biotech. So it's, uh, you know, it, we give a lot and, um, and hopefully we'll make the world a better place. At, and have a few people find that rung of a ladder that they didn't know about.
0: Well, it sounds like a really well-rounded approach to building a company that can that can last uh, and continue to churn out more and more products that help people with autoimmune disease and and maybe some other things too. Um, I think we're out of time. Thanks so much, uh, Joe, for joining me today on the Long Run.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from DA Wallet. See you next episode.